as we as we turn our attention there, preschoolers may be dismissed for children's church through the rear double doors, uh, those who are preschool-aged. But we're going to be uh, looking at a book we have not been looking at, at up, to, uh, up till now, Hebrews. This is a New Testament book, and uh, we're in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can just follow along with us uh, there in the order of worship. I just happened to be watching the Weather Channel this week when uh, they did a piece on an area in Death Valley in California, and it's an area called Badwater, or the Badwater Basin. And uh, and I'm going to have to cheat here and look at my notes, but it is 282 feet below sea level. It's the lowest spot, if I remember correctly, in the Western Hemisphere, and it's in our country. And uh, I looked on the computer this morning, and the low in bad water is 90. Okay, that means like at 4 a.m. when there's just the sun hasn't been out for hours, it was 90. And then it goes up from there. And not a lot of breezes, apparently, in bad water. Well, they did a piece about a guy who was about my age and apparently in pretty good shape and fit and all that, who, as a personal challenge, decided uh, that he wanted to take a take a, a video camera and just film walking across a 10-mile stretch of just these sort of salt flats just to see if he could walk the 10 miles, walk back, 20-mile round trip in this super hot area. And they showed the video of him walking, his shadow on the ground, and then the video comes to an end because he didn't make it. It makes it all the way across and then gets most of the way back and then stopped to rest. And when he stopped, he made his mistake. Just the heat was pulling moisture out of his body, and he couldn't stand up, and, uh, and he died. Now, with that in mind, I just happened to see that, that, that jumped out at me because I recently learned about a race that's held every year called the Badwater Ultramarathon. The Badwater Ultramarathon. Okay, now some of you have run marathons, like, what is it, 26.2? Is that a marathon? All right, some of you have run marathons. I plan to never run a marathon. <laughs> and so far, I have accomplished that, that plan. But this is an ultra-marathon. Now, to run a, a, a normal marathon is incredible. I mean, that is a real attainment. It's pretty amazing. That's 26 miles. The Badwater ultra-marathon is 135 miles. It starts at Badwater. And because the creators of the race are uh, gracious and compassionate and full of mercy, it is scheduled in mid-July. It begins in Badwater. That's 282 feet below sea level. It's 135 miles up, and it ends 8,360 feet above sea level. Um, Now, as I looked online about this Badwater Ultramarathon, what became clear was, yes, it would be amazing to place first. Yes, if you did it twice, which means you will now, like, you know, win every contest when people are sitting around talking about their exercise, like, well, you know, I've been lifting, I've been running. Just, you could say, uh, I won the Badwater, and people would kind of, like, get down and genuflect, you know, for the rest of your life, apparently. But, you know, if you did it twice and you beat last year's time, that would be incredible. But primarily, it is not a speed race. It is an endurance race. Even people who do other ultra marathons cannot finish the Badwater. 
Now, I want you to think about this. We are about to read a passage from Hebrews. And just a little word of background, since we're just dropping into this book without any intro. Hebrews is in the New Testament. We don't know who wrote it. But as you can tell from the name Hebrews, the the, the recipients of this letter are people who are ethnically Jewish. They're ethnically Jewish. And apparently, they have been exposed to the claims of Jesus. They've been exposed to the gospel. And some have made professions of faith, but now they're waffling. And, and at least a critical mass of this group are reconsidering returning to Judaism. And so this writer writes Hebrews to exhort them, don't do that, and here's why. And what he talks to them about right in this context is about faith. And right before our passage is, one of, is a very famous passage of the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11 is a chapter that is about faith. And some people have called it the roll call of the faithful. You get all these names and characters from the Old Testament. Some well-known, some not so well-known, but it just says, by faith they did that, and by faith they did that. Everything they did was by faith. And they really didn't see most of what had been promised to them. They had to live by faith. And then right on the heels of that chapter, you get what we're about to look at. And, And I want you to think about this. In this room right now, there are both the convinced and the unconvinced about Jesus. And we, we, we never, ever assume when we get together that everybody here is convinced of Christianity and everybody believes this and every, you know, like, ah, oh, that's a done deal, it's a wrap, uh, you know, count me in. We always assume that there's just an entire mixed bag present. Now, here's the thing. For those who are, would call themselves Christians, for, for those who are the convinced of this, you experience hardship. And you bump into things in your life where you say, you know, I, I can do this a little bit longer, but I, I don't know. Like, I'm 35 now, and I'm trying to take care of myself, but if that means I live to be 85, I don't know that I can do this for 50 more years. This struggle this challenge, this, this setback. I, I, I don't know. And it exhausts me, honestly. Or it may be that you're here and you're saying, well, I mean, this is interesting, but I don't have faith and I can't just, you know, whoop up faith from within myself. So what does this have to do for me? And I want to say to either person, this text should do two things. Number one, it should be refreshingly honest about hardship. That life is an, an ultra-marathon. And it gives us good news. It doesn't just say, now get out there and run. Toughen up. It's, there is good news for the convinced and the unconvinced. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. We've just heard this list of people who believed. Most didn't see the fruit of their belief. And then the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Let's pray together. Lord God, our Father, we pray this morning that we would not find this to be merely words and merely a sermon. We pray this morning that this would be to the thirsty, cold spring water. To the hungry, that this would be red meat and good drink in our heart of hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If there is one big thing, if there is one big point to get from this text this morning, it's this, and we've already said it, but let's say it again. The life of faith is a race. The life of faith is a race. And don't so much think in terms of a a speed race, a sprint, a short distance race. It is more like an ultra marathon. It's a race of endurance that takes the rest of your life. Now, before we go any further, why is it so important to establish that on the front end? Because this is not the only place in the Bible where that metaphor is used. The metaphor of a race comes up especially in the New Testament, several times. Why is that such a fitting metaphor and why do people like us need to understand that? Well, one reason would be this. I would say that as Americans in the 21st century, here's our cultural moment. The predictions that the the more scientific that we became, the more scientific the world became and our country became, and the more technologically advanced we became, that, that religion and God and faith would just mean less and less and less and less. Those predictions absolutely crashed on their face. But what you hear from people is typically, I'm not a religious person, but I'm a, I'm a spiritual person. And when you look at how spirituality plays itself out, especially in the United States, it's safe to say this. We tend to be very attracted by spiritualities that present us with and you can insert different words here, they present us with a door. Here's the door. Now, if you will listen to what I'll tell you is the door, like where to find it or what it is and how to walk through it, if you'll walk through that door, really the struggles will stop. Uh, You'll be bumped up to a different tier. Your experience will completely change. The struggles will fall off you. And really the key to spirituality is understanding this door. Or it's a key. And I'll give you this key. Come to my you know, seminar or read my book or come to this ministry and I'll give you the key and you can turn the lock and the problems will go away and the frustrations will be explained. Or it's a step. Or it's a secret. But we tend to be attracted by spiritualities that say, here's this thing and just kind of in a moment, if you sort of get it with this secret knowledge that not everybody has... Most of the riffraff don't know this, but I'm letting you in. If you get this, then boom. Whereas, in contrast to that, the old, old, and I mean millennia old, biblical metaphor is that life is a way. It's a road. It's a path. And it takes your whole life to get down it. That is the old, old biblical way of describing it. And the New Testament picks up on that 
And multiple times it describes the life of faith as a life of the race. And a couple of things about that just from this passage. Number one, the race that is run, that we run... Did you note that the pronouns in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it's not just me, I, my, my journey, my race. It's us. Us on this race. But what did it say? It said that it is set before us. Set by whom? Set by God. That, and, and just think about the implications of that. As we're running and we are getting hairline fractures or we're twisting an ankle or our hamstrings are locking up or a knee blows out and you're going, well, maybe that was there before, but it's also because of this crazy terrain I'm having to run across. Why is that terrain that way? Because this is the race that God set before us. But the second thing is this, and we've said this already, it's an endurance race. That word endure, endurance, comes up not once but twice in the passage. One person that really understood the reality of this was the Apostle Paul. In the book of Acts, there's this really touching scene. It's in Acts chapter 20, where he's with a group of elders. They're the leaders of the Ephesian church. And he's telling them goodbye. He's about to go to another part of the world to tell people about Jesus. And so he's about to get on the boat. And it's, it's the last time he's with these elders and he's recapping what he did in their midst and telling them what he's going to do. And right there in Acts 24, he says, All I want, all I really want is to, is to finish my race. That's all I want. And when you get to what is probably the last thing that we have written by Paul, 2 Timothy... In the last chapter is chapter 4. In the end of chapter 4, almost at the end of his life, where he is probably about to be beheaded by Nero's orders, he says, I'm about to be poured out like a drink offering. Now, he, he, was, he was a realist. He says, I'm about to be poured out like a drink offering. But he looks back on his life and he says, you know, I fought the good fight. And then he says, I finished my race. This is life. All the hardships. It's... Now, let me ask you this. What does that mean for us? What realities does that mean for us, according to the writer of Hebrews? Three things. First thing is this. He says, you, if, if you're going to take this seriously, and if you're going to engage in this ultra marathon, number one, you've got to lose the impediments. Lose the obstructions. What does he say in verse 1? Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. I'm sure that you've heard this before or learned this at some point in history that, you know, in a first century con uh, context and probably before that, Greek athletic contestants would do so without clothing. Okay, we no longer do that. Off campus. Um, I thought that would get a bigger laugh, actually, when I said off campus, but you live and learn. I'll revise that. But, uh, but you know, but when you watch the Olympics, almost every single sport, everybody is just in skin-tight clothing. Whether it is, I mean, whether it's swimming, no big baggy swim trunks, you know, everything is just sleek. Swimming or skiing or gymnastics. Uh, one of my favorite to watch is speed skating. 
And those guys take the cake because they not only have these entire skin-tight body suits, but now they have these tight hoods that come over their heads. And when they, when they have that on and the wraparound sunglasses and these big shiny skates, they look like androids. You know, they're like, just the whole thing is just shiny and metallic and sleek. And you wonder about, okay, if you took that hood off, everything else is just, you know, sleek and tight, but, you know, just a little wind in your... I mean, does that really make that much of a difference? And apparently their viewpoint is, yes. That might be just the edge that makes me lose. So they lose all friction, all impediments. It's that kind of imagery that the writer says, look, if you're going to run an ultra, uh, this ultra marathon, you've got to lose those things. Now, how do you flesh that out? He says, the weight that holds you back, the sin that entangles you. What does that look like in practice? Now, think about this. For those who are believers, and I would say this is even just something that happens in ethical dilemmas, but I'm, let's say specifically for a professing Christian... Sometimes you come to a real moral fork in the road. Or I can do this, or I can do that. And so you're sitting there thinking about, what am I going to do? It may be that you're thinking about, I think I'm going to do this, and a little voice inside of you is saying, I don't know about that. I don't know. I, something about that seems wrong. But you want to. Or maybe you don't even want to, but you feel a lot of peer pressure to, or expectations to. And often what we'll tell ourselves is, well... The Bible doesn't forbid that. It doesn't forbid me to do that, so, okay, yeah, I'll do it. What if the way we thought about decisions like that was this? Will this help me run, or will it hinder running? For instance, you know, we're in summer mode now. Summer is a different mode. It's a different mojo. And sometimes people take summer breaks not only from school, but kind of large blocks of church going. Now, is there a biblical command that says you have to be in weekly worship every single Sunday? To many pastors' chagrin, no. There is no verse that reads that way. I know how somebody might argue for it, but I think to most people it's not compelling. So is there a scripture saying, ah, you can't take a Sunday off. You can't take two Sundays off. You can't take ten Sundays off. There, no, not really. But is that going to help me run? Or will it hinder? Or when the fall starts back, let's say for those of you who are parents and your children have school, and your children have other activities they're involved in, but then other activities present themselves late in the summer or early in the fall that your children could do yet more enriching activities. And so you as the parent, or you and your spouse, you're thinking about, do we say yes to this? Are we out more nights? Do, do we let them do that? Does this help us as a family run? Or does it hinder us running? Here's an irony. You know what could actually hinder our running? Running. Or cycling. Or triathlons. Are, are running super long distances forbidden? I mean, there are going to be more examples of that in the sermon. Are triathlons forbidden? Of course not. 
But what if the goals that I have for myself to be in shape or, or stay in shape, what if they become so labor-intensive and they demand so much time that it's actually pulling me away from relationships? Maybe that means with my friends. If I have friends, if I have real friends, uh, pulling me away from my church community, pulling me away from family, right, is pulling me away from where I could actually stop and be still and meditate on who God is and what He's done in Christ? Is this, is, this, is this the good thing the New Testament talks about when it says physical training is of some value? Or is this hindering my running? This, this requires community. This usually is not figured out by yourself. This takes people who will go through life with you. The, the pronouns are plural. To say, help me think through what is helping me run and what is tripping me up that just seems like normal life, but it's not. It's an impediment. Lose the impediments. What's the second thing? Remember the stadium. Remember the stadium. What, what is the image of verse 1? What's the image? It is the image of a stadium or an arena. This would have absolutely registered with first century hearers. They would have been able to mentally picture this easily. It's a stadium or an arena. And there's so many people, he calls it a cloud. You know, when you look at a cloud, you don't see individual droplets. It's just a big powder puff. It's just, it's a cloud. He's saying, you look up into these stands and you can hardly even make out individuals. It's a cloud of witnesses. And they're watching what? They're watching us. They're watching us in an endurance run. Now, think about this. Um, I just found out this, you know, races have been on my mind this week with this passage. I just found out about a guy named, and, and I don't know how to pronounce his last name. It's either Carnazi or Carnazi. He's called Carno. He's called by Men's Fitness Magazine the fittest human on the planet. So I guess it's not us. I guess we, they, they didn't uh, name us that. <clears throat> Among the many things he's done, one would be he ran 50 marathons, 50 consecutive days. Another, he ran 350 miles nonstop. I read that and thought, it's kind of like one of those moments where you sort of go away and like readjust your skull and sort of, you know, what? And, you know, this is like when, when you hear huge numbers and you can't emotionally compute with it that, you know, there's a hundred billion galaxies and the blah, blah, blah. And you go, I, I can't feel that more than 50 billion galaxies. What is 350 miles? 350 miles would be something like this. What if you walked out of your house in Greenville and someone was there and they said, go run a marathon? She'd go run a marathon, which is incredible. And then you get back and this person says, okay, good job, run another one. So you go run a second marathon after running your first marathon. Then you get back and he says, good job, run to Atlanta. So you run to downtown Atlanta and then you run back. And then when you get home, he says, run one more marathon. That's 350 miles. Now... 
That's crazy. And up till reading that, I think if someone had said, did you know that you can run 350 miles? I think up till last week I would have said, that's silly talk. That's devil talk. That doesn't resonate with reality at all. Now, I'm under no illusion that everybody can do that. I think hardly anybody can do that. But what it does demonstrate is that that distance can actually be finished nonstop on foot. All right. If we're believers, we're in this stadium, and there's this cloud of witnesses around us, how is that supposed to help me? Is, is it supposed to be that I look up there and Moses is up there and Moses is looking down going, I loved God. You ought to love God. I, I went up there to that dangerous mountain when it turned into a volcano, basically, and got the Ten Commandments. I think you could sort of live by them. Hello? You know, do, do, do we look up there? If it's an arena, what are they shouting? If it, and if it's a stadium, how did they get up there in the bleachers? Here's the question. And guys, this is where the good news, the gospel, really starts to come out in this passage. Is this a stadium of merit? I mean, most arenas and stadiums, they are. If not for the fans, the people on the, on the field. Is this a stadium of merit? And you know what? Sometimes the way we talk about Old Testament characters, we make it sound like it is. David faced his giants. Go face yours! David was a man after God's own heart. You ought to be a man after God's own heart. That's how we teach it sometimes. What are they doing up there in those stands? Do you know some of the people up in those stands? Hebrews 11 says one person up there is Rahab, the prostitute. And you know what it actually says in Greek when it says that she's Rahab the prostitute? In Greek, it actually means prostitute. And she is cited as an example of faith. She's up there. How is David the adulterer and the murderer and the bad parent up there? Merit? Accomplishment? If they are watching us run an endurance race, what would this stadium be shouting? Would they be shouting, focus? They would be shouting, trust Him. I know it hurts. We hurt. But trust Him. And don't stop. If you will trust Him, you won't stop. Trust Him. What? That is faith. That is faith. And here's the thing. That leads to the real issue. Here's the real thing we need to remember. Yes, lose the impediments, the things that entangle. Yes, remember that we're in a stadium, which is amazing that they're watching us. But verse 2 says it all. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. I want to look at those words in reverse. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith. What does it mean that he's the perfecter? There's been a lot of ink spilled about these terms. The the, the best I can state it is this. The fact that he's the perfecter means he lived out, he modeled, 
He was the example of a life of faith and trust more than anyone who's ever lived. We tend to not think of Jesus as a believer. But it actually says in Hebrews earlier, chapter 2, verse 13, He believed. Jesus trusted God. He shows the ultimate in believing and trusting God. But if we stop there, it's discouraging. If we just say, Jesus is your example, go out and be like Jesus. I mean, it's at moments like that. That's sometimes how we teach about Jesus. Pastors do this. He gave His all. Will you give yours as we pray? And it's at moments like that where you kind of want the boy from the, you know, the story of the emperor's new clothes to stand up and go, No! No! No, we won't give like Him. No one's ever given like Him. That's why He's one of a kind. He's the perfecter. But He's the founder. And this is so lovely. Because that not only means that He gave us the object of belief. Faith has to be in something. Faith has an object. What is the object? What does verse 2 say that He did? He endured pain. He endured scorn. He went through the shame and He despised that shame. He despised it. The experience of it. The identity of it. On the cross... He lived the perfect life. He lived perfect trust and faith and bore the punishment of those who don't live by faith or or who live by faith inconsistently, imperfectly. He bore that kind of punishment for those who would believe. And then here's the amazing thing. And then God Himself is the one who gives His people the faith talk about good news, is that He not only did it, He not only did it, but He got the punishment and the scorn that I deserve for not finishing, not enduring, not making it through the ultramarathon when I said I could, when I thought I could. And I am given credit for Him doing it for me. He bears the punishment for me, and God gives me the ability to believe that. Faith is not attained. It's not stirred up. It's not of our own production. It can be encouraged and warmed, but it's given, granted by God Himself. And so whether you're here this morning as somebody who's convinced or unconvinced, if you're convinced and you're here and you are exhausted and you feel like, Okay, look, God is making demands that no one can do. No one can be as generous as He says He wants us to be in this present economic environment. No one can be. The stadium is saying, trust Him. If you say, well, I don't have trust, I don't have faith, He can give it to you. He has not only modeled it, He can give it to you. It's impossible for a single person or a divorced person to be celibate for a lifetime. It it, it cannot be done. Trust Him. Trust Him. It is impossible 
to be hospitable and have people in your home the way the Bible says we should, share our home, share our things, when there are texts and emails nipping at all your privacy all day and you, th- and you need a few moments to yourself, it's impossible. Trust Him. And keep running. It's impossible to not only believe in, but to love and adore someone you've never seen. What do you think faith is? It's believing in someone you've never seen. It's impossible to love Him and feel close to Him more than anybody or anything else for a lifetime and you can't trust Him. And let me end with this. Um, you know, reading about races all week. Came across a guy named David Goggins. David Goggins uh, was a Navy SEAL. And um, he lost uh, some friends that were colleagues in Afghanistan. And he wanted to do something for children about to go into college, children of these uh, soldiers. This is unbelievable. So he Googled hardest things in the world to do and decided that he would pick some of those and do them and get sponsors and raise money for these friends' children to be able to go to school. And so it was things like the Badwater Ultramarathon. And when he signed up for it, they said, have you ever done an ultramarathon? No. Have you ever done a marathon? No. They said, might want to do an ultramarathon before you do the Badwater. So he said, I did, and I did. And I, I looked on his website, and this is, this is what you read on the homepage. This is not buried in a link. This is on the homepage. It says, quote, I'm nobody special. Yes, he is. I'm nobody special. Let's be perfectly clear. I don't like to run. I don't like to swim. He was a Navy SEAL. I don't like to bike. I do this to raise money for the children of soldiers killed in combat. And I want to end with this. Did you hear what the text said about why Jesus endured? Because He hated the shame for the joy. And I want to end with this. And then it says, and then He sat down at the right hand of the Father. And you know what Jesus knew from experience? In Psalm 16, it says this, that in the presence of God is joy forever. And at His right hand, it says, are pleasures forevermore. And that's where He's seated. The reason He endured is because He wanted that joy, but the fullness of His joy is for people like us to be with Him, with that joy. Running is hard. Running takes your whole life, and you'll have hairline fractures, and you'll blow your knees out, and your hamstrings will lock up. Trust Him. Amen. Let's pray.